The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. So forgive me if I'm a little lethargic tonight. I uh, Just before we came on the show, I was treated to a couple slices of delicious pepperoni pizza. Okay. And it wasn't something I expected. But it was something that showed up at my porch. One of our listeners actually had a pizza delivered to my house. Wow. All right. That's that's neat. Well, it's kind of cool because last night in the chat I had said, boy, I really want to have a pizza. And uh, one of our good listeners, Daisy, took that to heart. And uh, a pizza showed up on my front front door. I I was really, really shocked. So I'm going to try this. Okay, let's just see how this works. I really wanted a Ferrari. I was just going to try this. Oh, what's that? Go ahead. Uh, I really want a million dollars. Okay, so let's see what happens. If one of you get on that, it'd be really awesome. Thank you for much. Well, don't much. you really only want 500000 and you want to give 500000 to your buddy? I always share with you, my buddy. Yes. I always do, so you know that. <laughs> hey, welcome to Beyond Reality Radio, everybody. And uh, it's Jason and JV, and we got some. We got a great show tonight. We do. This is going to be very, very exciting. We kind of took a last-minute uh, detour. We have had Peter Lavenda scheduled to come onto the program for a while now. Um, and the original topic of conversation, which will still be part of tonight's discussion, was his new novel called Dunwich, which is the second volume in a trilogy that began with the Lovecraft Code. And this is these are books that are inspired by H.P. Lovecraft's work. Um, but then uh, I got it in the in the uh, as I was doing some research, I saw. Uh, that Peter also wrote a book called Ratline. And Ratline is a book that outlines um, how Hitler may have actually escaped Nazi Germany at the end of World War II. Oh, look at that. And you and I have talked about that many, many times. This is a topic that you and I have a great interest in. And yeah, uh, th- I'm a firm believer. I'm yeah. a firm believer that he did. Well, there's a lot of really compelling evidence. But the, the interesting thing about Peter's book is that he takes a bit of a departure. Most of what you've seen and heard, particularly in things like History Channel's uh, The Hunting Hitler, yeah. uh, is that he, he mean, meaning Adolf Hitler, went to South America. Yeah. And there's a lot of evidence to support that, right down to even uh, government uh, government documents that talk about him being there. Yes. And... The difference here is that Peter has a different theory. Peter has evidence that supports that he went somewhere else. And I'm not going to say where, and I'm not going to say what the evidence is yet. We'll let Peter tell the story, but uh, it's very, very compelling. Well, on that note, we're going to take a quick break. A lot more to come. You listen to Jason and JV Beyond Reality Radio. We'll be back after this. Please support the program. Go to patreon.com slash Johaw. That's J-O-H-A-W. Our guest tonight, we've had on the program before, Peter Lavenda is an author and a historian. You should stop by his website, which is just his name, PeterLavenda.com. And he's got a new book out. It's actually the second in a trilogy. It's the second volume. It's called Dunwich. It follows the Lovecraft Code, which we had Peter on talking about the last time he was on the program. Peter, welcome back to Beyond Reality Radio. Great to have you here. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Thanks for coming on, Peter. So this, uh, the book Dunwich is the second in your uh, trilogy um, that kind of draws some inspiration from H.P. Lo- uh, Lovecraft's work. Uh, the first book was The Lovecraft Code. Introduce us to what the trilogy is about so before we can start talking about the second book, which is Dunwich. Sure. Uh, it's the story of Professor Gregory Angel who's a professor of religion and religious studies at Columbia University. He's a descendant of George Angel, who is introduced in The Call of Cthulhu by Lovecraft. Uh, George Angel has 
uh, document uh, concerning the the, um, the Cthulhu cult. He's asked to sort of give his opinions about it uh, in that story. And then a lot of weird things happen. Uh, there's a student from Rhode Island School of Design who is uh, involved in making a sculpture that he sees in his dreams, and it's the same uh, image of Cthulhu that he's that the professor sees in other places. So he knows something strange is going on. Um, eventually, though, George Angel is murdered on the docks in Providence, um, and the uh, his his document goes missing and all of that. So my story sort of picks up, you know, years later. One of his uh, descendants is Gregory Angel, and he's from the Angel family. Um, the Angel family was actually a very well-known, very prominent family in Providence in real life. Uh, Lovecraft was basing his story on people uh, and a family that actually ex existed there and had a tremendous influence on Brown University uh, and the academic life in in Providence and in Massachusetts. There was a lot of crossover between the Angels and the Waylands and other, other people uh, that sort of creep into Lovecraft's stories. So my guy is Gregory Angel, and he was a religious studies professor um, whose one of his relatives died on 9-11. And actually, this is also true. Uh, David Angel, a famous a television producer from shows like um, Frasier, for instance, and Wings, and of course, Cheers, those three uh, shows. He was a producer on it, a writer on it. He died on 9-11. The plane that he was on from Boston crashed into the North Tower. So I use that as the basis for this guy, this um, invented character, Gregory Angel, who's related to all of the angels and who feels motivated now to do something. And he, he speaks the, the languages of the Middle East. So he's brought by an intelligence agency to help them go into the Middle East and find a book that everybody seems to be talking about and which seems to be so crucial to maybe an, an uprising involving al-Qaeda and other kinds of terrorist groups. So he's uh, brought out, he's, he's, he goes for a few missions ahead of time, uh, just helping after 9-11, uh, embedded with the troops, but he sees something in Mosul in northern Iraq which totally blows him away. He sees a massacre of people called the Yazidi. And when that happens, he kind of loses his faith in God and religion and everything else and doesn't want to be bothered. He doesn't even know who he is anymore. And that's when he's tapped by this mysterious intelligence group operating out of the National Security Agency uh, in Fort Meade, a shadowy organization that sends him out back again reluctantly, really against his will, to go out into Iraq and to find this book that everybody seems to be talking about. And that's the Lovecraft Code. That's how it all starts. So we follow Gregory Angel through all of these countries, uh, through Central Asia, all the way uh, into Nepal, uh, into the Himalayas, where he has a confrontation with the cult that has seized this book and is using it to summon uh, dark powers. And we leave him at the end of the Lovecraft Code. Uh, the I won't go into no spoiler alerts here, but eventually he does get, a, get his hands on this book and sort of disappears. And now everybody's looking for him. And the, Dunwich, the book Dunwich picks up from that point. Um, and it starts off with alien abduction. Uh, in the very first opening scenes, there's an alien abduction scenario. And talk about genetics and genetic testing and who's the father of this woman's children in Providence. And then it goes on from there and becomes really insane after those first few pages. It becomes really insane? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like well, we already 
the whole story yeah, wasn't really insane. rational to begin with. <laughs> well, the whole as a person, I live in Rhode Island myself, and as a as a person from Rhode Island, of course, H.P. Lovecraft is a is a very important figure here. He's buried in Providence and and so forth. And uh, but the whole the Dunwich Horror was based on a fictional town in Massachusetts called Dunwich. Correct. Yep, that's correct. So and then it just uh, ro- go ahead. Sorry. It, goes on, it goes on from there. I mean, the the book Dunwich is based on the Dunwich Horror. So the Dunwich Horror, if you go back and reread it uh, with a with a sort of a jaundiced eye, you'll see that really the Dunwich Horror is about a lot of very strange things. Uh, it's not just a, a sort of horror story. There's a lot more to it than that. There's really the 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 theme of incest and, and using children and ritual uh, sacrifice and ritual uh, ceremonial magical rituals is really uh, front and center in the Dunwich Horror. Um, and it's even hinted, Lovecraft goes so far as to hint that this is what this is all about in the story itself. He has all the villagers whispering, how did old man Waitley, you know, and his daughter suddenly have a, a child? I mean, what's that all about? So, uh, and it all happened during a magical ritual. So Dunwich is about those themes. It's about alien abduction. It's about um, ritual magic. It's, you know, magic involving uh, children, which is a very sensitive topic. And I'm trying to approach it uh, in this era where everybody's talking about things like that to try to uh, bring some understanding to what that it would really be like if this was you know, actually part of a ritual magic um, uh, agenda or formula, however you want to put it. Peter Lavenda is with us. He's an author and a historian. We're going to be talking about his book, Ratline, a little bit later in the program, which is Peter's investigation and um, presentation of some very, very compelling evidence that Adolf Hitler did not commit suicide in the bunker in the late days of World War II in Berlin. It's a topic that you and I have talked about many, many times. We have. And there's some competing ideas as to where he may have ended up if he did, in fact, escape Germany. Um, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later. But right now we're talking about Dunwich. Dunwich is Peter's second book, the second volume of a trilogy that began with the Lovecraft Code. And, uh, Peter, I want to ask you about uh, about Lovecraft himself. Um, we were speaking in the introduction of the program tonight. He wasn't appreciated in his time and frequently find that there are authors i think edgar Allan poe was another one didn't really receive the recognition that he may have deserved while he was alive and it all kind of happened after uh they left us with with lovecraft what was it about his work that that was the life cycle of it well it wasn't really mainstream i mean it wasn't the kind of um the kind of writing that would appeal to a broad section of of humanity um, it, it appealed to a certain type of person. It appeared to it appealed to to um, young men for the most part. Those who would today in, in this day and age, you know, be reading you know Marvel comics or something, or back in the 30s and 40s, maybe Weird Tales and things like that. It was sort of in that that genre of horror fiction, which appealed to you know a smaller segment of the population at the time. Now it's sort of a, a bigger business, but in those days, I think it was kind of considered almost tabloid or pulp fiction and it really didn't it wasn't it didn't rise to the level of literature you know in in the in the eyes of uh, literary critics and people like that it was like it was a kind of a specialty and of course lovecraft's prose is rather purple i mean it takes a little getting used to uh he 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 favors archaic words and archaic combinations and weird spellings of words and things so it's very idiosyncratic so you have to kind of get on board with it but 
in the last uh, 30 years or so, there's been really um, a rediscovery of Lovecraft. Even Joyce Carol Oates, you know, wrote an anthology, I mean, or, or published an anthology of Lovecraft's work with her own introduction to it. So it started to take on more of a mainstream, like, look who we've overlooked. Look, at this, there's this gem, this uh, this jewel of American literature that, for whatever reason, back in the in the 20s, we, didn't, we really didn't pay much attention to. And, of course, he was being published in very fringe publications as well. So it didn't really reach a, a wider audience. No, and for a long time there, it seemed that it was more just for the goth-type crowd. And yeah. now, now it's really opened up to, to pretty much everybody out there. Yeah, and it's been reinterpreted a lot also. Of course, I'm guilty of that as well. But uh, a lot of movie uh, uh, producers and directors have kind of reinterpreted Lovecraft in more modern uh, times. A lot of the stuff that you see, like Alien versus Predator, for instance, things like that, have a heavy Lovecraftian flavor you know, going down into the Antarctic and, you know, finding this vast subterranean temple and these alien beings in there. That's really right out of Lovecraft. So you had that that idea that there were these alien um, beings that were trying to get back into the earth. And then it gets recycled into uh, Eric von Daniken and Chariots of the Gods, you know, and Zechariah Sitchin and his books on, you know, the Sumerians and the Babylonians and, you know, aliens coming down and trying to do something on the earth, manipulate humans or something. That was Lovecraft. I mean, that that was his metier. That was his his uh, that was his environment, really. A lot of people will read his work or the work of other authors, and not many then decide to write something that's inspired by those works. What made you uh, write your trilogy uh, as inspired by Lovecraft? I just found that there was a lot in Lovecraft that bared looking at again. I found a lot of weird. Uh, synchronicities and, and coincidences uh, between Lovecraft's work, for example, and some writings by Aleister Crowley. Um, the weird thing about Lovecraft, and I know I've said this before, but it's something that really stands out, is that Lovecraft is very specific about month, day, and year in his stories. I mean, there's something about Lovecraft that he feels compelled to say, on this day, month, and year, this is what happened. Um, so I have like a timeline to work with. So with that timeline, I go back and I realize that at one point, um, Lovecraft is writing about a weird ritual that takes place on November 1st, 1907, or October 31st to, no to November 1st, 1907, in the bayous, you know, in, in uh, Louisiana, outside of New Orleans. And that date rang a bell, and I, and I looked over Lovecraft's uh, writings, and sure enough, on that very same month, day and year, October 31st, uh, 1907, Crowley is actually in the process of writing what he later would call his holy books. And these were sort of almost stream of consciousness prose um, with a lot of allusions to black monoliths and black basalt, you know, temples and weird eldritch things. And, and Lovecraft is actually writing this on that very day in 1907. And then Lovecraft puts the Call of Cthulhu's first major ritual uh, in New Orleans in October, October 31st, 1907. And I thought, well, that's weird because the writing is so similar and the idea of these rituals are so similar that it appeared as though one was talking to the other. And we know now that Lovecraft may have had, you know, some fleeting familiarity with the name of Aleister Crowley, but he certainly hadn't read these books. Um, and he would not have known about all the details and, you know, the lacunae of, of Aleister Crowley's work and when he wrote this and when he did that and, you know, all this other stuff. 
So that was compelling to me. It looked like there was something going on here, that there was some sort of, you know, uh, avatar, some sort of uh, maybe a, a kind of strange connection between these two writers, because they're both writing about weird states. They're writing about rituals. They're writing about um, contact with non-human entities. And all of this, you know, fell together for me. And I thought, wow, there's something going on there. That was one uh, impetus for the books. The other one was the fact that we're now in the midst of a lot of news and a lot of angst about the Middle East. Uh, the, the mad Arabs are really mad Arabs now. You know, they're, they're right. really mad and they're really <laughs> Arab. Um, so the mad Arab of, of Lovecraft's writing now has taken on this 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 form. It's an actuality, and you have you know you have this tremendous turmoil out there, and yet people tend to think that um, it's a monolithic culture, which is far from the truth. They think that, for instance, Islam is the only religion out there which is far from the truth, and that it's monolithic, which is also not true. And I wanted to show some of that. I wanted to show all the different kinds of cults and religions that exist out there next to each other, cheek by jowl, all these really weird little groups that, you know, somehow manage to coexist under those circumstances. So the Lovecraft Code, the first novel, takes you through that. And it, all the groups that I mention um, are real. You know, they're factual. There's a heavy dose of, of uh, fact and uh, I would say almost revelation in Lovecraft Code about real groups of people and what they really believed and their relationships with their neighbors, the Yazidi being, you know, foremost among them. But uh, other groups, too, like Al-Haq and a lot of others, the Zoroastrians in, in Iran and the, um, the, the groups in the, on the border between Afghanistan and uh, Pakistan, the Kafiri. So there's a lot of really weird religious groups out there in that part of the world, and people don't realize that. And I wanted to really focus on that uh, and give an idea of the context for what Lovecraft was thinking about when he came up with Abdul al-Hazred and the Mad Arab and all of that. Your, your uh, books have been compared favorably, I might add, to The Da Vinci Code. Would you say that uh, folks who like that type of intrigue and that type of mystery uh, are going to find some of that in, in this trilogy? They will. They'll, they'll actually find it, but not in the Da Vinci Code sense of Christianity and the Holy Grail and all of that. It's, it's really focused more on the non-Christian not almost non-Abrahamic religions. So we're talking about, you know, the weird cults that existed in the Middle East, but also when you get into Dunwich, we're talking about Asian uh, groups as well and Asian interpretations of Islam or of Buddhism or Hinduism and all of that. And it's all real, as I say. I mean, my, my books, in this case, these three, this trilogy, is like a Romana clef. It's a, it's a, it's a novel that has um, a lot of Easter eggs in it. Uh, a lot of references to people, places, and things. Some of them are overt, and others are sort of uh, playfully uh, concealed because I'm talking about maybe living people or, or actual groups that exist today. But astute readers will pick that up pretty quickly, and they have. I mean, people have been writing reviews and you know picking up on the illusions. So it, it's like a Da Vinci Code, but with things actually happening today, uh, people, places, and things are being mentioned that are actual. And I picked that up from Lovecraft, you know, using months, days, and years and I'm really drawing a very close parallel to things that actually were taking place uh, on those times, on that timeline represented in the novels. The third book, I believe, is coming out pretty soon as well, right? I mean, you this this uh, when did Dunwich come out? Uh, it came out the early earlier this year. Earlier this year, and then the third the book spring. is coming out in the fall. Is that right? 
No, it'll come out probably in the spring. In it the has spring, to be okay. finished. It has to be finished. In the fall. <laughs> I was going to say um, that's pretty ambitious. <laughs> yeah, no, it'll be in the spring uh, of uh, 2019. I believe that's how we're scheduling it now. And it's going to be called Starry Wisdom. Uh, and that's going to bring all of this to, to a head. It's going to bring all the, the various threads together. Uh, and that's going to be based loosely on the Shunned House and Haunter of the Dark. So all of those, the idea of a church uh, that had to be moved out of Providence and then down to New Orleans is the, uh, is, the, is the framework for Starry Wisdom, the third novel. And our guest tonight is Peter Lavenda. He's an author and a historian. And Peter uh, wrote a book called Ratline. Peter, I think that you released that book in 2012. Is that correct? Uh, that sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, let's start because Ratline uh, is an examination of what actually happened to Adolf Hitler uh, following, uh, well, in the last days of World War II. The official story is that he, or it was anyway, that he committed suicide uh, with Ava Brown and his body and her body were thrown into a little pit outside the entrance to the bunker and burned with gasoline. And the Soviets found those charred remains when they captured Berlin. We have about five minutes in this segment. Let's take those minutes and kind of recount that official story and where some of the holes in that story started to pop up. Sure. Well, the the. The official story is that on April 30th, 1945, Hitler committed suicide. Um, Hitler and Eva Braun both committed suicide. His propaganda minister, uh, Josef Goebbels, and his entire family committed suicide. Uh, and General Krebs uh, also committed suicide. And their little dog, too. Uh, what, the, 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 the Goebbels dog was also killed. So all of these people are now dead. They've committed suicide. The problem with the story is that we don't know exactly who was shot and who took um, cyanide. Uh, between Hitler and Eva Braun, there's conflicting stories, even uh, among the people in the bunker, as to what actually happened to the two of them. But at any rate, according to the story, all of these bodies were taken outside, and the uh, the, the guards at the, the Fuhrer bunker were told to pour gasoline and cremate the bodies. Well, it's really, really hard to cremate uh, human remains with just a can of petrol, of, of gasoline. It's that you, you need a really high flame. You need an enclosed area. You need basically a crematorium in order to do this right. And it's kind of uh, sickeningly ironic that the Nazis who created some of the most famous crematoria in the world uh, could not actually incinerate Hitler and his wife. But at any rate, so these bodies are thrown into a pit. The Soviets enter Berlin uh, from that side, and Soviet uh, agents from Smersh, which is their counterintelligence, military counterintelligence, uh, find the bodies, uh, dig them up, claim they found Hitler and Eva's bodies, as well as the Goebbels family and Krebs and the dog, and they load them all into a van. And this is where the odyssey starts, because according to what we knew at that time, the bodies had been discovered, they had been cremated uh, and, and taken away. Um, the problem is that Stalin kept saying he didn't believe Hitler was dead. Uh, and if Stalin didn't know when his own people had you know, taken the bodies, then who, who would know? And so the rumors started to go all around the world that Hitler had survived. Now, did he shoot himself? Did he take cyanide? Did he do both? How did Eva die? Did he shoot her? Did he give her cyanide? All of these stories. Uh, and we have so many conflicting stories from the people in the bunker that we really don't know what happened. And then later, uh, the Soviets had prisoners, uh, German prisoners from the bunker that they had captured, and they're getting all different kinds of stories from them. 
And the British are getting different stories from their prisoners. And then people like Otto Skorzeny, uh, Hitler's uh, favorite commando, the guy who rescued Mussolini from the top of that mountain um, using his paratroopers. Skorzeny, uh, when he was captured in Austria, claimed that Hitler must still be alive. He was sure that Hitler had escaped alive. Hannah Reich, which was uh, Hitler's favorite uh, uh, pilot, a, a female, a woman pilot who was just a daredevil uh, with an airplane, flew into Berlin in the last days and tried to convince Hitler to fly out with her. She was going to fly him to someplace safe, and for some reason he said no, but they talked a lot about uh, their last stand that they would make near Salzburg. Hannah Reich flew out like the day before April 30th, and then she was captured in, in Austria by the authorities, and she told the same story. She said Hitler no way committed suicide. He was on his way out. He was going somewhere. So all of these stories started to spread around, and nobody knew what the truth was until just a couple of years ago we begin to discover that there's actually no forensic evidence to show that Hitler died in the bunker. Well, and I and I know that they even ran uh, the University of Connecticut, and we'll get into a lot of this. Ran tests on yes. the skull, and it came back as a, a female, uh, forty or under. Yeah, that's exactly right. In fact, I, I know the archaeologist who performed those tests, Nicholas Bellantoni, and uh, I contacted him about this when the story broke. He, he had actually examined the skull in Moscow, the ones the Russians said they had a skull with a bullet hole in it. Well. You know, there were a lot of skulls with bullet holes in them. Uh, so, I mean, it could have been anybody, right? But they said this has to be Hitler because he shot himself. Um, so it was kind of ridiculous. And he, he took a piece of that back with him, had it tested. And no, it, it was not Hitler's skull by any stretch of the imagination. And the Russians themselves published their their story of what they did to these bodies. And it's ridiculous. I mean, it's actually ridiculous. I sat there and I read this thing and I thought, this is your official account. You couldn't lie to us just a little better than this. You know? <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's true. You're right, because they also and then they tried to claim that they had more evidence. And we'll get into that. But talking about jawbone fragments and, and yep. stuff like that, which proved it was Hitler. And uh, Peter Lavenda is an author and a historian. He's written uh, many books about many different things, including the book we were talking about earlier, Dunwich, which is the second in his trilogy uh, that started with the Lovecraft Code, and the book we're talking about now, now Ratline, which is uh, an investigation and a look into what actually happened to Adolf Hitler. Uh, Peter, before we went to break, you were telling us what, quote-unquote, the official story was. The Soviets capture Berlin. Some Soviet uh, personnel uh, enter the compound where the entrance to Hitler's bunker is, and you say they find these bodies that were partially cremated, um, and partially probably isn't even the right way to describe it. Were these bodies pointed out to them by anybody? Did they stumble upon them? And what made them convinced, or at least what made them think that these were the bodies of Hitler and some of his henchmen and their families? Well, actually, the, the, the identification of Hitler and Eva in particular was done through, uh, believe it or not, through dentures. Uh, both of the corpses had been fitted with new dentures, brand new uh, sets of dentures, both the male and the female uh, corpse. And even the Soviets pointed out that the dentures did not fit properly into the skulls, but because the dentures matched drawings that were given to them or made for them by a dental technician they had captured in Berlin uh, who drew them from memory. There were no actual documents about the, the dentures. He drew these from memory and it matched more or less the dentures they had uh, for Hitler and Eva. 
So therefore, they assumed that the two bodies they had were Hitler and Eva Braun. Um, the problem was the dental technician told the Russians that he had made two sets of dentures for each person, two sets for Hitler, two sets for Eva, and he did this in April of 1945. Now, that doesn't make any sense at all. None. When you're planning, when the, when, when the country is falling apart and you're actually considering suicide, you're going to go and order two sets of identical dentures, both for you and for Eva Braun. Why two sets? You know, um, so obviously they needed dentures. Hitler had horrible teeth. I think he only had three actual teeth in his head uh, by that time, by April of 45. Uh, Eva was in better shape. But at any rate, he has these two sets of dentures made, and those records evidently existed. So two sets of dentures are made right at the last moment, right just before Berlin falls. And one set is found in these two bodies. The other set has never been recovered. Mm. This leads you to the obvious conclusion that there was like this insurance scam thing yeah. being developed, right? You know, you make these fake dentures, stick them into a corpse, and, well, that must be Hitler then because those are his dentures. Um, and that seems to have been the plot. But, of course, we don't have proof of this because we don't have the bodies. And what happened is the, the Russians took the bodies, all the bodies, including Goebbels' family, and there's like seven, eight people there, and, uh, and this General Krebs and the dog. And they take all these bodies, put them in a van. And they drive them out of Berlin. And now the Odyssey starts. And this is according to the Soviets' own publication on this, which came out a few years ago. They have the bodies in the van. They stop somewhere in the woods and they bury the bodies. Then they come back a little later, like a day or two later. They dig up the bodies, put them back in the van, drive them someplace else, bury them again. This goes on two or three more times. Finally, they get to the town of Magdeburg which will be now in East Germany. Uh, and there's going to be a KGB headquarters there, an a, a KGB office of some kind, and there's a parking lot. They bury the bodies again for the final time in this parking lot, pave it over, and that's the final resting place until 1970 of Hitler and Eva Braun. So the question remains, if that's the Russians' official story of what they did to the bodies, where did that skull in Moscow come from, right? So... In 1970, on orders of Yuri Andropov, who at that point is head of the KGB, the, the, the KGB goes to Magdeburg, to that city. They dig up the bodies again. This is in 1970 now. This is, you know, far after 1945. And right. they take them down to a river and they burn the bodies. Once again, they really cremate the bodies this time and throw the ashes into the river. And then that's the end of the story. According to the, the official publication by the Russians, this is what happened. Now, the story about Hitler and, you know, Hitler's survival and the bodies and all the rest of it and driving them around and all, all of that was known as Operation Myth in, in, in the KGB archives. That's Operation Myth. I mean, right away, like I say, couldn't you lie just a little better, you know, make us all feel better? But they had to lie outrageously. So they call this thing Operation Myth. But the funny thing is the British, you know, in 1945, as the Russians are driving around with these supposed bodies of Hitler and Eva, the British now have to come up with a story that proves Hitler is actually dead because they don't want people, you know, thinking Hitler is still alive. They don't want Hitler to be, you know, to, to 
run a, a some sort of a back you know channel kind of uh, operation in Europe or wherever he's going to be. He doesn't. They don't want people looking for him. So basically, they have to prove Hitler is dead so everybody can get on with their lives. And so they tell this historian, Hugh Trevor Roper, you know, go out there. You have three months. Find you know, find us the the evidence that Hitler died in the bunker, that Hitler's dead, he's not coming back. You've got three months to do this. We know you don't speak German. <laughs> you won't have access to the prisoners the, the Soviets have. You probably won't have access to the prisoners the Americans have. You only have access to ours. Talk to them, put together the story. And by the way, you know the project name or the operation name for this operation is Operation Nursery. <laughs> so now you've got nursery and myth, you know. <laughs> I mean, come on, you know, so Trevor Roper goes and he talks to a lot of people and Trevor Roper himself says eyewitness testimony is the most unreliable there is. And he's getting stories that don't match from everybody. Everybody's telling him a different story. A shot rang out, you know, Hitler shot himself. No, Hitler took cyanide. No, Hitler and Ava both took cyanide. No, Hitler shot Ava. No, Ava shot Hitler. No, somebody came into the room and shot both of them. I mean, everybody had a different story. And all of these prisoners, of course, are mostly SS. So what possible motivation would they have to lie about anything? <laughs> so now you've got all these stories coming there. You've got all the stories that the Soviets are being told by their prisoners who change their stories every every 10 minutes, depending on how they're being tortured. And so all these stories, nothing matches. But, you know, Hugh Trevor Roper, being the, the MI6 officer that he is, puts it all together and creates a story and says, yes, Hitler died in the bunker. We have the evidence because so-and-so told me so. And that was it. That was supposed to settle everybody's, you know, hash for this. But there was no forensic evidence. Nobody had a shred of evidence that Hitler survived. In fact, they found Hitler doubles. They found two of them. One of them was dead. The uh, the Soviets found this guy they thought was Hitler, had a photograph taken with him. And later it turned out to have been one of Hitler's doubles. And they found another double living quietly in another town somewhere. So they know that Hitler had doubles already. So who was in the, the crypt, in, in the grave? Outside of the bunker, no, nobody knows because we don't have we don't have those bodies. We have no evidence any longer. Well, and a lot of people believe it to be pretty much innocent doubles that were that were murdered and, right. and put there. But there's also the FBI had documents talking about how they believed that Hitler had escaped and made it to Argentina and so forth. And so sure. we were looking into it. I mean, our government was looking into it even while they were passing this this information as if he was he was dead yeah uh eisenhower didn't believe that hitler had died for instance in the beginning he was convinced that hitler had escaped uh everybody was talking about this and you know there's there's an interesting little bit of information the the oss during the war which was the forerunner of the cia they had uh, done a psychological profile of of hitler but they had also developed some kind of propaganda stuff uh, about Hitler uh, and and predicting what he would do, and they're predicting you know some sort of uh, um, Gettodamerung kind of you know self-immolation thing at the end of the war. They romanticized this up as well, and so the story was already there. The story had been created even before the end of the war. So they were looking at that kind of a, of a you know Hitler killing himself and then dying on a funeral pyre. They had already figured this out like a couple of years before the end of the war. It's very mysterious how all that came together. And I would never, ever have believed that Hitler had survived the war had it not been 
for the events that I became involved with in, in 2009, 2010, where the whole thing just came together. Peter, actually, uh, you followed up Ratline. Was, with a, was it another book or a, a revised edition of the book? No, another book. It's called The Hitler Legacy that came out in 2014. And that takes everything that I learned in Ratline plus a lot of additional information that came to me because of Ratline. People suddenly started uh, contacting me, people who knew more about the story, had additional documents. So they, uh, they enabled me to really go into the story in much more depth. So we have about just a little less than four minutes in this segment. Tell us what happened that started to turn your head uh, in the direction of what you now believe actually happened to Hitler. Well, I was uh, in Indonesia, of all places. I was spending three months there at a university. I was getting my master's degree in religious studies, and it involved a semester that I was taking in, in Indonesia. And when I was there, people started telling me this outrageous story, it seemed to me, that uh, Hitler had you know, escaped after the war and had gone to Indonesia, of all places, to a remote island, um, you know, way to the east of, of Java, east, east of uh, Bali, all the way out there, uh, right around the area where the Komodo dragons come from. And that Hitler had gone there with Eva Braun and had lived there as a doctor and then had died in 1970. And my reaction was, yeah, right, sure, of course. And, uh, you know, of course, I didn't believe a word of it. I mean, it sounded like something totally outrageous. But then at that same uh, time in 2009, then uh, Nick uh, Bellantoni came out with this story. I mean, he was on television showing that the, the skull the, the Russians had was not Hitler's skull. So there wasn't any evidence that Hitler actually died in the bunker. And I'm thinking, well, wait a minute, I better look at this a bit more closely. And the story in Indonesia uh, came up with documents, with, with a, a small booklet was published that had photographs of this guy who supposedly was Hitler, had photographs of documents that were in German that were found with him or that he had owned. And I started looking at all this and I thought, wow, I mean, if this isn't Hitler, this is a Nazi war criminal who, for whatever reason, wound up in Indonesia. And so I started to really dig into that story a lot more. And it's, it's, it gradually occurred to me that maybe I was really looking at something very genuine, that the, the Indonesians were not far off, that maybe it was or it wasn't Hitler, but it was somebody important who decided they had to hide in the middle of nowhere uh, compared to Austria and Germany and just live out their days in obscurity. So I looked at that uh, information. I got contacted by other people. And uh, an odyssey really began of me living in, in Asia for longer periods of time, uh, dealing with the guy in Singapore who had actually all that original documentation. I mean, he actually had the physical passports and everything else of these two people who had uh, escaped after the war to Indonesia. And, you know, the guy is the right height. The right age was born in Austria. I mean, everything started to fit into into this pattern. And he had the same mustache. He had the Hitler mustache, the whole nine yards. And the his wife, you know, looked like Eva Braun. So there was a possibility of a story there. And then when I realized that he had died in January, the end of January 1970, this supposed Hitler character in Indonesia, it was only shortly after that that Yuri Andropov of the KGB orders those bodies to be dug up in Germany and cremated. Wow. It was like it, there was a juxtaposition of timeline there that just made me think, what is going on with this story? So I went and visited the grave of this guy in Indonesia and was shocked to find out that there were no dates on the tombstone. 
whereas every other tombstone in that Muslim cemetery had date of birth, date of death. This guy's didn't have it, didn't have any dates. It's like they didn't know who this guy was or when he was born or when he really yeah. died. Yeah, and it, it's amazing, really, when you dig deep into it, and there's just so many stories out there, so many different claims. Peter, you have, what, dozen or so, maybe 14 books? You've got a bunch of them, right? Oh, yeah, a bunch of them uh, on various subjects, but I like to think of them all as chapters of one big book that I'm still writing. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so uh, sadly, we're not going to have a whole lot of time, uh, So, we, but we have a lot of story to get to yet as it relates to Hitler and what actually happened to him after World War II. You uncover evidence. You believe he's on an or he was buried on an island, died in 1970. Trace the path for us where Hitler leaves Berlin and actually ends up on this island, if in fact that's what happened. Well, to understand this, you have to understand something about how the Nazis managed their escapes. Uh, it was something called the Rat Line. And uh, part of the Rat Line was the monastery route. That was the very first Rat Line. It was created by a Catholic priest, a monsignor from Croatia at the end of the war. He was helping the Croatian uh, government, which was pro-Nazi, to escape to South America. And then that system that he set up, he used for everybody else, including some very famous Nazis, right? So he was uh, the guy that arranging all of this. And what they would do is give people false identities, false papers, false passports, all that sort of thing. Well, in this particular case, what's fascinating is that the person who escaped to Indonesia with his wife escaped in the name of a of a medical uh, uh, officer, a doctor, uh, somebody who didn't really practice medicine but was more of a bureaucrat. He was the chief medical officer of the Salzburg area under the uh, the Third Reich, which meant he was responsible in many cases for the um, the murder of people who were too sick to live, useless eaters, as the Nazis called them. So people who might have been infirm or had some, maybe they were mentally disabled, physically disabled in some way, and then he would. This was the guy that would make would order those people to be uh, uh, exterminated. So this was a doctor. Uh, they didn't really know that much about him at the time, this particular doctor. But they gradually, the authorities gradually came to understand that this guy was probably a war criminal and they were going to start looking for him. Well, the doctor disappeared. Now, the story is that he fled to northern Italy and then in north Italy, he laid low for a while. Then he got his papers and escaped. The man who replaced Heinrich Himmler as head of the SS when Himmler was caught dealing with the Allies trying to save his skin, was a man called Ernst Kaltenbrunner. Kaltenbrunner um, was, was the head of the SS you know, after, after Himmler. He was caught, he was captured near Salzburg, near where all of this is taking place. And he had on him uh, papers showing that he was a medical doctor. In fact, he was carrying a doctor's bag when he was uh, apprehended. The papers that he had were real papers of a real German doctor. So I started to wonder if maybe this German doctor who went to Indonesia was not really a German doctor. He was somebody like Kaltenbrunner who was using uh, the papers of a real doctor, in this case, a doctor, Georg Anton Puch. Now, this guy was believed to have escaped uh, to northern Italy and for some reason lays low for a number of years. There's a possibility that this is the guy who went to Argentina, but didn't stay there very long, and then eventually made his way to Indonesia. And the reason I give for that is because I think that Hitler, at the end of the war, when his own generals tried to kill him in July of 1944, Operation Valkyrie, 
And when he realized that Himmler had turned against him and that most of the high command was disobeying his orders, ignoring him and cutting side deals with the Allies, why would Hitler then go to Argentina where all the other Nazis were turning up? And with the danger that somebody would drop a dime on him and hand him over to the authorities so that they would save their own skin. I think that Hitler would not feel safe with his fellow Nazis around since they all try to kill him or double deal on him. So I think that eventually, if I was Hitler and my closest friend in the bunker was a guy called Wally Havel, Walter Havel, who had spent 10 years in Indonesia developing the Nazi party apparatus in Indonesia before the war and had nothing but stories about Indonesia and about living in Java and living in the various islands, so much so they called him Surabaya Wali. If, and he's never been found. His body was never found. He was with Hitler until the very last. He was one of the last people to leave the bunker. So you put all this together, and suddenly you have the story that maybe Indonesia would have been a perfect place for Hitler to hide. It was a Muslim country. Uh, Mossad would not have shown up there, would have been really pretty um, obvious if they had. Uh, it was one of those places where he could have bought his way into obscurity. And I believe he did buy his way into obscurity because of evidence that came out later that uh, both this mysterious German doctor, quote unquote, and his wife had bank accounts in Jakarta at a very obscure Indonesian bank which later became the center of a controversy over something called the Revolutionary Fund, which was set up by Sukarno in Indonesia when he took over at the end of the war, and which was financed by Nazi gold shipped from Portugal. So the whole story fell together for me that there was something more going on in Indonesia and that these people, this doctor and his wife, might be the key to it and might be the key to what happened to Adolf Hitler. It's a fascinating point uh, because the, 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 I guess, common belief for those who may be talking about Hitler escaping is, is the South American option. Um, but the fact that most of those high-level Nazis either did plot against or turn against Hitler in the final days uh, would make it uh, logical that he would look to be somewhere else. But the question I would have is Hitler was such a narcissist would it's it's almost difficult to believe that even in exile he would not be looking to make a return in some way was he do you think he was so completely defeated and knew that if he was discovered in any way that he was a dead man that he was he was uh, just satisfied to just live out his days uh in obscurity in anonymity i i get your point and i see that exactly and it's very possible that uh, Hitler would have eventually felt that way. Initially, he would have been frightened for his skin. He would have laid low, but then he would have started plotting, right? He would have started plotting a comeback. Right. And actually, we have some evidence that he did that in Indonesia. Mm. During the year of living dangerously in 1965, when Sukarno was being overthrown, because Sukarno was believed to be in bed with the communists, particularly the Chinese communists, which was kind of a trumped up story. But nevertheless, they overthrew Sukarno and the generals took over. When that happened, for some reason, this guy who pretended to be a doctor shows up on the island of Bali at the height of the massacres of, Balin of Balinese people by the, the security forces there, who thought that all the Balinese were cooperating with the communists or whatever. And he actually went there. He was there in Bali at that time and then returned 
to uh, to his island in Indonesia, telling his wife that he felt you know great that he met some old comrades there and you know everything was going swimmingly. There's this idea that maybe he might have been involved in the overthrow of Sukarno, either financially with Nazi gold or in some other way by lending some kind of leadership or control, and that he was getting back into his old uh, in his old way of running things, being the the Führer, which is why I think. By 1970, somebody had convinced him to leave his island and go to Java to this big port city of Surabaya, which he never did. He hated leaving uh, his his little area there where he was kind of obscure and and away from all foreigners and everything else. He went to Surabaya on, on a pretext that we don't quite understand, and within a day he was dead. Wow. So I'm, I'm wondering if perhaps that was engineered Somebody, you know, convinced him to go there. When he got there, they took care of him. And now he's buried in a, in a cemetery that I went to visit in Surabaya. Is there any evidence that later, as years passed, uh, from the point where he arrived on the island to the point where he may have been considering trying to make a comeback, that there was communication between him or anyone on the island and those exiled Nazis in South America? Well, an interesting thing happened uh, after Sukarno took over the government in the early, late 1940s, early 1950s. There was a visit to Indonesia by the man who had helped finance the Third Reich, uh, the finance minister Hjalmar Schacht. Now, Hjalmar Schacht was the, was the major finance minister. He was also considered a war criminal by the Allies. Uh, he got out after only a very short period of time, and he winds up in Indonesia again. You know, Indonesia keeps coming up and he's there as an advisor, quote unquote, to Sukarno as to what he should do to create a kind of a caliphate, a, a caliphate uh, of all the Muslims in Southeast Asia to fight against the Chinese communists. So he was in Java at the same time that um, this doctor was in Indonesia and conceivably also in Java the same year when he was setting up his bank accounts in Jakarta. So. They crossed paths. Now, whether they met and discussed or they had, they went through an intermediary, I'm not sure. But for Schacht to show up, who was Hitler's right hand, the guy who actually helped to finance the Third Reich, he shows up in Indonesia at the time when this Hitler person, with this doctor, also shows up in Indonesia. And there's a lot of gold and money involved in this transaction as well, and financing Sukarno and the so-called Revolutionary Fund, which was supposed to be set up to fight the International Monetary Fund, and the World Bank. So there was all this stuff going on, all this politicking that's taking place. I, you know, I don't know. I don't know the whole story. I'm still digging at that because the banking situation itself is tantalizing because it's an obscure bank. And yet Hitler and Braun, these two people, both had accounts at that bank in Jakarta. So something very fishy was going on there. Well, so do you believe that there's more more information that would say that Hitler went to Indonesia than Argentina then? Because I know a lot of the reports out there and a lot of the belief out there is that he made it to Argentina. And, and it's a big German uh, colony out there as well in, in, in those areas. Do you think that there's more evidence to support Indonesia over Argentina? I think in terms of the possibilities, I think there's just as much information. Let's put it this way, just as much evidence to suggest Indonesia. I, I used to think Argentina in, in initially when I started covering the story. 
And then I looked at all the, the documents of the CIA, the FBI, and all the stuff that was going back and forth to Hoover uh, about sightings of Hitler all over the place. And I thought to myself, um, th it, there would have been better I, um, better information than this. When I started looking at some of the other Nazi colonies in South America, in Chile, Argentina, Paraguay, and in Brazil, I thought to myself, you know, we know where almost everybody was. We knew where Mangala was, for instance. We kept on missing him all the time. They picked up Eichmann in 1960, which would have scared the hell out of Hitler had he been in Argentina at the time, because they would have really gone after Hitler instead of instead of Eichmann. Um, but everybody else wound up there. Walter Rauf wound up there, Eric Priebke, Franz Stangl. All of these high-ranking Nazis wound up in, in Latin America and were kind of known. The Israelis even sort of held back from going after the rest of them for a lot of reasons, mostly geopolitical. If Hitler had been there, I think they would have found him. I just uh, think that that would have been their prime target. And I think that nobody really would have thought looking in Indonesia of all places. That was just way off the radar, which I think it was the safest place since there was a Nazi connection there and even a Nazi party apparatus where the Gestapo was going there telling the Japanese what Jews to arrest and put in the camps. I mean, it was that deep. And there was submarine traffic going from from uh, Germany to Indonesia. There was a lot of German submarine traffic back and forth. They were helping the Japanese, and the Japanese were supplying them with raw materials. So there was this constant intercourse back and forth between Europe and Indonesia for for during the entire period of the war. So it seemed to me that there was this whole Indonesian uh, element of the story has been ignored until now. Nobody really paid attention to it. But the evidence is there. There's photographs, there's, you know, testimony, there's documents, there's everything. There was a large Nazi apparatus there. Well, and if you think about it, him coming to Argentina, it, it would appear as if he was pretty much in our own backyard. It would be yeah. sort of a scary thing heading out to Indonesia, sort of put you out of the way of everything. Absolutely. Peter, we only have a couple minutes left, but one of the things I think we failed to do with this story is really uh, accurately portray the timeline. How long did this man uh, hide in Europe, and I think it was northern Italy that you said, before he, yes. he made his escape from Europe to wherever and ended, ended up in, ending up in Indonesia? Well, we know a handful of things. We know that the, the so-called doctor wound up in northern Italy in 1946. And then he left Europe for Indonesia uh, in uh, the late 1952 and 1953, early 1953. So there's this big chunk of time that's unaccounted for, which is the mysterious part of the story for me, because it doesn't make sense. The documents that we have, the records that this guy kept, shows that he had all the information about the rat lines that he needed. He had the name and address of that Catholic priest I mentioned. He had the names and addresses of safe houses throughout North Italy, all the way to Genoa. Uh, there was even evidence he was taking Spanish lessons. I mean, everything is there in this documentation that suggested this guy would have gone to Argentina. But then suddenly, we have other documentation showing that he left Rotterdam in the Netherlands on a ship bound for uh, for Jakarta. So there's this disconnect. There's a space of time between 46 and 53 where, the, unbelievably, he's still in northern Italy, which is why I tended to think that the doctor went to northern Italy and then the doctor was removed and replaced with Hitler when they found a suitable guy who looked like him, 
who uh, spoke uh, German with an Austrian accent uh, the way this guy would have. I mean, the right size, the right shape, even down to the mustache. This guy was sort of a dead ringer. So maybe there was that that space of time was to develop this alternate personality. One final question, and we're going to have to let you go. This is a quick one, though. Um, going back to the Russians and their discovery of these bodies, do you believe that the Russians were complicit in a cover-up here, or just were they just did they just bungle the whole thing? I think they bungled it initially, but by 1970, Andropov knew there was something wrong with the bodies, which is why he had them destroyed. It doesn't make any sense otherwise. And then just cover their tracks. So, Peter, yep. thanks so much for coming and hanging out with us, and it's always a pleasure talking to you, and we look forward to having you on again in the near future. No worries, man. Yeah, Peter, please promise to come back. And I want to remind everybody, this whole story, Peter's evidence and everything he's discovered and talks about here, talked about here tonight, is available in the book Ratline and the follow-up book, The Hitler Legacy. So uh, check out all of that on Amazon and everywhere else that uh, books are sold. Peter, thank you so much. Thank you. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.